1: Six dollars ninety-five cents to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box five zero eight Fishers, Indiana, zip code four six zero three eight. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Fade. Monday, April 23rd, 2012. I hate to disappoint, but I've got to invoke the uh, light edition today. I can't remember the last time I did it on a Monday, but I am uh, working on a project and I can't, well, I can't pull away from it. I, I apologize. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. That requires us to do the comparative work. Part of what we do here is teach. And, you know, listen, after last week... Oh man, we did we did not get a, a real light edition last week. We had two sermons we did for our light edition, and uh, anyway, so I, what I'm going to do today, I have to invoke the light edition. I'm on a on a writing deadline, and you know I'm awash in um, Druckerite fascism. All this stuff is, you know. I in fact, if you could see my, uh, <laughs> if you could see the my desk. I've got piles of books, piles. Uh, as I uh, frantically try to put together the, well, what I would consider a very, very blistering argument that needs to be made. I'll give you details later. But um, So what we're going to do today is we're going to be listening to a good lecture by a, my former pastor, uh, one of my former pastors, uh, uh, Pastor Ron Hodel of Faith Lutheran Church, Capistrano Beach, California. And uh, he's done a, a basics class, you know, the basics of uh, of the Christian faith, if you would and uh he this is a lecture on the proper distinction of law and gospel. What I find interesting is that there are folks out there who claim that uh law and gospel is some kind of weird synthetic construct that the lutherans concocted. <laughs> no, they didn't. <laughs> they didn't concoct this. They actually exegeted it out of the bible itself, uh, you know, particularly uh, the book of Romans and the book of Galatians. But uh Pastor Ron Hodel does a really good job of, of uh, walking through the basics of this uh proper distinction of law and gospel and how to you know how to how to understand where it comes from biblically and how it how the rubber hits the road as we as we delve into the biblical text uh so important that we need to have this fresh in our mind because as we uh, go into this week and do the other stuff that we're going to be covering in the program this week, I, I need to be able to refer back to something fresh in your memory because uh, of some of the critiques I'm going to have to offer for the stuff that I will be offering you know, throughout the week. So anyway, uh, without any further ado, here is Pastor Ron Hodel and his uh, lecture on Law and Gospel.
0: Tonight what I want to do is I want to look at uh, the, the topic Law and Gospel um, and when when law and gospel is, is a is a a basic distinction in Scripture, and I think it's actually primary to our understanding of the Bible. Uh, if you don't keep the law and the gospel straight, you'll things will get screwed up. And it's deeper than just um, the laws in the Old Testament and the gospel is in the New Testament. When I when I got to this church many years ago. Uh, somebody came to me and said, uh, asked me if they, I, they, I play tennis, and I didn't play tennis. They said, "What did you do?" Because that was a lot of things happened on the tennis courts, and I said, "I swim." Well, that's not conducive for conversation. And uh, they said, "Well, we play we play Old Testament tennis." And I said, "What's Old Testament tennis?" They said, "No mercy." And I thought, "Okay, well, that's interesting to start off that way," because. There is incredible mercy. There's incredible gospel in the Old Testament. We start with Genesis three, uh, with with the fall into sin, and you've got God making uh, making the promise of a savior. Uh, what what greater gospel can you get? And then there's law in the New Testament. You uh, all those texts uh, from last Sunday on uh, from First Timothy on uh, the requirements for the overseer and the deacon. That's that's pure law. So the, there's law and gospel found in Old Testament and in in the New Testament. What I'd like to do is just kind of start with a confessional definition of, of the law. What do our Lutheran confessions say about the law? And here I'm going to be quoting from the Formula of Concord, the Solid Declaration, Article 5 on Law and Gospel. And it, it reads, The law is a divine doctrine which reveals the righteousness and immutable will of God showing how man ought to be disposed in his nature, thoughts, words, and deeds in order to be pleasing and acceptable to God and threatens the transgressors of the law with God's wrath and temporal and eternal punishment. So the law is the divine doctrine that teaches what is right and pleasing to God and it rebukes everything that is sin and contrary to to God's will. So what does the law do? The law always does certain things. The law always tells us what God expects of us and what is pleasing to him. The law always demands things. I, I think of the law as that wagging finger that somebody would wag under your, under your face all the time. Um, the law always commands, do this, don't do that. And the, maybe the easiest way to think of the law is also the law always accuses. The law is always going to accuse you. And the co-relative of of, of God's law is God's wrath. So the point is that this law is serious. It's not the ten recommendations that God gave. It's not uh, the suggestions that God gave on Sinai that were relative then, but they're not very relative now. They're the ten commandments. They are God's immutable or his unchanging will. And one more point about the law is the law doesn't say that God only expects you to do the best that you can. God doesn't grade on a curve. If this is a biblical doctrine, you'd expect to find it in the Bible, and we do. So the law is everything that demands perfect obedience to God. From Galatians chapter 3 verse 12. He who practices them. He who practices the law. Shall live by them. Keep the law in all of its parts. And you shall live. The law is everything that pronounces God's curse. On all the transgressors. Again from from Galatians chapter 3. For it is written. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by some of the things written in the law. Well, actually, that's not what it says. It says, uh, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law. He expects perfection. The law is everything that renders the whole world guilty before God. We'll look at this passage again a little bit, but from Romans chapter 3, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, And all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. So we're all under the law, no one has kept the law perfectly, therefore no one is justified in God's sight by the keeping of the law. And finally, the law is everything that gives knowledge of sin. From Romans chapter three again, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, to the question, "How can I be saved?" the law has an answer. You know that that might be um, a central question in all of religion. Uh, probably, maybe pushing it a little bit, but whether it's nirvana or becoming merged with the with the cosmic Brahma or getting your own planet, how can I be saved is, is rather important. And the law has an answer for that. Just like Buddhism has an answer and Hinduism has an answer. Everybody's got an answer. And the law's answer is, be perfect, even as your Father in Heaven is perfect. Do that and you will be saved. Or... Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And the scribes and the Pharisees were, by relative standards, very, very good men. If your daughter would bring home a Pharisee, she brought home a really upstanding man. There's some problems with that, but she brought home an upstanding man. And your righteousness has to exceed his to enter the kingdom of heaven. Have a nice day. Um, If a person does them, if a person keeps the law, he shall live by them from Deuteronomy chapter 18. And not only is a perfect life demanded of us, everything has to be done to the letter. Everything has to be done out of genuine love. It has to be done with an altruistic care for your neighbor without any concern for getting anything back with a total lack of selfishness, with a perfectly pure motivation. And what happens is the law curses or pronounces a curse on everyone who has done anything less than absolute obedience to the absolute law of God, period. It's getting a little bleak. And we're going to get it even more bleak. Uh, There are some deep water points for the law. Now, when uh, the, the Bibles that we have, they have chapters and verses in them, and, and those are, those are put in by man. The text, of course, is inspired by God. But it's interesting to see that Genesis 3 and Romans 3 come up together in relation to the law. So... Genesis 3 is, if you will, the deep water point of the law in the Old Testament. I don't need to rehearse the whole story of the fall with you, but with, with the fall comes, uh, then uh, the law comes in and God says, uh, and Adam knows exactly what's going on, God says, where are you? And it's not asking, where are you? I can't find you. You're hiding under the bushes here. It's where are you now in relationship to me now that you've want to, you tried to usurp my place as God? Um, where are you? Uh, what have you done? Have you eaten the fruit of which I told you not to eat? Um, and, uh, and finally, from Genesis chapter 4, where is your brother? God asks Cain, who has shed Abel's blood, so uh, Genesis 3 is the deep water point for the law in the Old Testament, and Romans chapter 3 is a deep water point in the New Testament for the law. So in Romans chapter 1, uh, Paul levels the, the, the Greek pagan, uh, the Greek pagan who might, um, if maybe in his dreams think perhaps there might be a judgment, uh, would say to God, God, you can't blame me. Um, I had no Old Testament. I never heard of Moses. I didn't have the law. You go jump on the Jews. They had the word of God. So, so, uh, but, but I've never had them, had the word of God. And so uh, uh, Paul, God through Paul, says to the Gentiles, that's true, but even by nature, you knew the law, at least in part. And then uh, Paul speaks to the Jews. The Jew who would say, as he hears Paul talking in Romans chapter 1, go get him, go get those Gentiles. God, you would be just in destroying all of them. Uh, Paul says, well, you who have the words of God, have you kept them? And of course the answer is no. And Romans chapter 3 summarizes chapter 1 and chapter 2 when it says... All have sinned, Gentile and Jew. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So both Genesis one, uh, Genesis three, and Romans three are deep water points for the law. Now, what's the gospel? Again, from the Formula of Concord, uh, Article f- uh, five on law and gospel, it says. The gospel is the kind of doctrine that teaches what a man who has not kept the law and is condemned by it should believe. Namely, that Christ has satisfied and paid for all guilt and without man's merit has obtained and won for him forgiveness of sins, the righteousness that avails before God, and eternal life. That's the gospel. Now, as far as the gospel is concerned, everything in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that offers the grace of God and peace with God and salvation to the sinner is gospel. Now, there are some commonalities between the law and the gospel. You'd think that they are so different, that they are so diametrically opposed to each other that they couldn't have anything in common. And really, they do have a number of things in common. Um, They are both divine word of God. I put Marcion notwithstanding. Marcion was that early church heretic um, who's very, really quite popular with with all of us. Um, Marcion uh, didn't like the whole Bible. There were only parts of it that he liked. And so uh, he had the cut and paste method of defining what was going to be in scripture and those parts that he didn't like he cut out and threw away and those parts that he liked he kept Uh, rather human nature to do that for all of us Um, so both the law and the gospel are the divine word of god they're both trustworthy and true and they both pertain to all men and all women from in all time and they and they must be taught they apply to all people if we 're going to distinguish between the law and the gospel, we're going to have to understand the, the nature or the function of the law. and, and, and the law functions in several ways. I 'm going to say the law functions in three ways. Um, the first way that it functions is as a curb. It it restrains, it restrains sin. It keeps um, gross outbreaks of sin from happening. Um, From 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul writes, We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who dishonor their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers, for perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. The law is there to curb those people and keep them in check. Um, and you and you have recognized the curb in action many different times. When I'm coming to work on, I always I always go down by the ocean from my house because I can do that, and I always want to see the ocean in the morning. Then I know the day is going to be a good day, and uh, so so I'm driving down PCH, and uh, and and the curb in action is the front wheel of this motorcycle that is sitting just outside the Beach City's dive shop sign. And you can see just the front section of a motorcycle wheel. And that's all it takes for everybody coming down PCH to quickly put on their brakes and curb their gross outbreak of sin or speed because that's an Orange County sheriff on that bike. all right, and uh, And he immediately slows you down and keeps the people in check as they go down PCH. Now you know where he hides. Um, now, just uh, to know that the law doesn't have a lot of power, um, after you get underneath that new pedestrian overpass, you look in your mirror, and the motorcycle's still sitting there, and what do you do? Oh, I'm going to keep the law? No. Down on the gas. You know, Here we go again. Um, but there's a fear of consequence. There's a ticket coming. And that ticket um, curbs, or the fear of that ticket, curbs my outward manifestations of my sin and my evil. So that's the law as a curb. The law also functions as a mirror. Now, when you look in the mirror, you see a reflection. Um, and so when when you look in the Mirror of the law you see yourself you see just how sin has completely corrupted us and rendered us unable to do or even will to do the will of God so the law shows us our sin and that's what we call the primary use of the law or the theological use of the law. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 3 when he says, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of, of sin. But simply because we're conscious of it and aware of it doesn't do a whole lot to help us, help us keep it. Another thing the law does as a mirror is, is it, it even magnifies sin. From Romans chapter 5. Paul writes, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And from Romans uh, chapter 7, what a wretched man I am, Paul says. I am and I was and I always will be. I can't work myself up into some kind of level where I will be acceptable to God. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? I'm not capable. If anybody was good at keeping the law, Paul was. And even Paul's not capable. Um, as Paul would say, our only help, our only deliverance is going to come to us from outside of us. Um, and then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we Lutherans take that as Paul speaking after his conversion, not, not about his life before his conversion. Uh, so the nature and function of the law as a mirror. Is to show us our sin. That's job one. To point out our unrighteousness. Our, uh, uh, to break down our self-sufficiency. To break down our self-righteousness. To break down our pride before God which boasts of its own merits. And would spurn his grace. There's another way the law functions, and that is as a rule or, or a guide. Some call this the third use or the instructional use. It, 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 would, it shows us what a Christ-like life would look like, um, but there's a problem. It doesn't give us any energy to do it, and neither does doing it do anything to, to justify us. Uh, the law doesn't give us life. It just describes life, if you will. Uh, and the, the, the other problem with it as well is if we proclaim the law and then the gospel and then we go back to the law again. For instance, in the sermon, I, we talk about uh, we're, we're guilty of, of, of sin and God is right righteous in in judging us and yet Christ has died on Calvary's cross to save us from our sins and now you need to do this, 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 and this. Um, The gospel tends to get lost. Even though the gospel has been preached, the gospel tends to get lost. Partly because the law resonates with us. I mean, we understand the law. It makes sense to us. It's written on our hearts. Um, Another reason it's a problem is the law is more than just do's and don'ts. It's more than just moral imperative. Uh, Whenever the law is preached, it's going to accuse you. Even if I tell you, you should live this way. And I'm doing it, I'm just trying to give you instruction. I'm not trying to wag my finger at you. Well, the finger comes out. It just does. It hits us. So, how many uses of the law are there? One or two? Or three. Well Lutherans Lutherans love to fight about that one. Um, The Apology to the Augsburg Confession says there's one use. It's the mirror. And the Small called Articles talk about two uses. And the Formula of Concord talks about three uses. But they all agree with this. The primary theological use of the law is to reveal our unrighteousness. It's to show us our sin. It's the primary use. The purpose of the law is to bring a sinner into a clear knowledge of his sin and condemnation. So the primary use of the law for a Lutheran is going to be its function as a mirror, its theological use. It has to be preached in all of its vigor and severity. Even though though God commands us To do something that we can't do, you still need to proclaim it with all of its severity. And you might say, well, what kind of God is that? I mean, it sounds unfair for for God to, to ask of me something that I can't do. I'll never make it. And the answer is, that's right. That's what the scripture says. It commands you to do something you can't do. You're unable to do it. In other words, you're dead. It wants to bring it up that high. Um, and we can't solve the problem of the law by softening it. Um, you tell your, your four-year-old boy, who's just an overactive kid. just he's, It's a boy. I get this overactive. It's a boy. all right. Um, and, and you tell your four-year-old boy, stay out of the street. Now, what would you say if you know, I would come over as your babysitter and, and I would say, Son, you know, I want to sum up your mom's teaching about the street for you. What she really means is she wants you to be really careful about the street and do your, do your best to stay out of the street, okay? that's what your mom, That's what your mom's really telling you. No, and I'd be fired as your babysitter. Well, what if I would say... I'm going to sum up the law in the Old Testament by saying, God, do your best because God knows you're only human. That's not the teaching of the law. Just look at the words. Just let the words say what the words say. It's definitely not the the summing up of the Ten Commandments or the Torah. If... All the law was about was obeying the outward words. That's it. I might have a little bit of a running, running start at it. You know, like, thou shalt not murder. And, of course, I've not done that. Um, that's one commandment that I have kept. Um, and yet, what happens with the law in Scripture is it gets even more strict than just an outward keeping of it. Jesus, when he preaches the the Sermon on the Mount, takes the law and he stiffens it up a whole bunch. He says, you have heard it said, thou shalt not murder. And everybody, I'm good on that one. He says, but even if you call your brother a fool, you're guilty of hellfire. Um, You should not commit adultery. I'm good on that one. But even if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in in, in your heart. So what Jesus does is he, he intensifies the law. Um, this is Jesus doing what the theologians often call Jesus or God's alien work, um, as opposed to his primary cross shaped work. He's doing his alien work. He's being Moses to the tenth power. He's turning the heat all the way up. And we can't solve the problem of the law then by softening the law to keep from hurting people's self esteem. The law has to be preached in all of its vigor, exactly the way it reads. And for good reason. Our inability to do the law is God's tool. God's using this as a tool to bring us to despair, to kick the feet out from underneath us, and prepare us so that we can actually hear the good news of the gospel. Another place that the scriptures talk about the purpose of the law is in Galatians 3 where uh, Paul says that the law is a pedagogue, a a tutor, a schoolmaster, uh, which will drive us to Christ. Uh, From the ESV it says, now before faith came we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until faith came uh, Until the coming faith would be revealed, so then the law was our guardian, or you could put tutor there or schoolmaster or pedagogue, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. That's Galatians 3:23 and through 25. Now the idea of a tutor today might give us kind of a wrong impression because a tutor today is um, a high school senior uh, who's also a very beautiful girl who knows math who goes and tutors the freshman or the eighth grade boy and she's very nice and she's it's enjoyable to have her come over and teach you math um, that's kind of our picture of a tutor today but that's not what a Greek pedagogue was uh, when you look at pictures of ancient Greek pedagogues and we don't have pictures but but drawings Uh, he's pictured always with a stick in his hand and it's not because he's crippled and he's using it to walk with Um, a pedagogue if you're a wealthy person and can purchase their services is not your son's best buddy Um, he was rigorous Uh, Plato said that the job of a pedagogue was to follow your kid around and make sure that he did his homework um, attend classes didn't associate with the wrong kinds of kids, or didn't listen to the wrong kind of music. And the stick was there uh, to indicate a use of force. They didn't have the same rules we do today. all right. So that was a pedagogue then, and that's what, what Paul calls the law. The law is a pedagogue, and it accomplishes basic function when sinners get struck by the law, and they cry out, My God, what must I do to be saved? All right. And at that point, at that point, the law has to cease doing its work and the gospel has to come in. Um, The job of the law is to be preached in all of its vigor in order to drive us to the gospel. Other aspects of the law. The law does other things to us as well. The, in one sense, the law makes things worse. It increases, our, it increases the trespass. It increases our sin and our enmity toward God. Um, it makes it hard to ignore the fact that we are out of sync with God. It, it, Paul calls it, he says, it magnifies the trespass. It inflames sin and gives sin energy. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 7. Sin wasn't recognizable until the law came. And then when the law comes, it's like pouring gasoline on a burning fire. It it, it does nothing to put it out. It just adds to it. Uh, The law inflames sin and gives it energy it didn't have before the law was preached. Uh, A simple example of that one is... uh, you, you have uh, uh, you, you have uh, your family at home, moms, and if you're the ones who do the cooking, and uh, you've done a whole bunch of cookies, and uh, you say, uh, and and you're cooking, and the, you know, man's watching TV and kids playing video games, and, and mom says, don't take any cookies because I'm, I've done these for the bake sale at, at church, and uh, um, we'll, we'll get I've got something else planned for dessert. Now I'll be I've got, just got to go over to the neighbors and I'll be back in a few minutes." Until she said that, he wasn't thinking about getting up off the couch and finding cookies. But the little kid, you know, whoa, and he gets over there and just reaches up there and grabs the cookie. Now he just grabs the cookie right there, because uh, he just can't help himself. The law has increased the trespass. Now, little boys grow up to be men, and, and we come in and we look at that tray of cookies, and we figure out, now, how can I rearrange these in such a way that it will appear that there are no cookies gone? All right? That's what we do. Um, the law stirs up trouble for our salvation, but it's trouble nevertheless. It's, it's, uh, Romans, that's Romans 7 in action. It reveals the wrath of God. So for the reformers, the main point of the law was that the law function as a mirror. So in summary, the main purpose in the preaching of the law is to lead us to a knowledge of our sin. And I pointed out Jesus even preached the law. Uh, It was his alien work to the tenth power. It's the Holy Spirit preaches the law. It's it's his alien work to the tenth power as well, to lead men to a knowledge of sin uh, so that uh, he can call us to faith in Jesus Christ. But to do that, he's first got to break us with the law. The law and the gospel promise the same thing. So they're not, they have some things in common. They promise the same thing. The law promises life to the sinner. It does. Do this and you will live. provided you obey it perfectly. The man, who, the man who does these things will live by them. And the gospel pr- promises life to the sinner without the deeds of the law freely given by grace alone. In that famous Bible passage from Romans chapter 4 verse 5. However to the man who does not work. But trust God who justifies the wicked. His faith is credited as righteousness. I kind of summarized that one. I don't know if it's, a, it's a, the, the Hodel's Living Bible. Maybe I you know, so just to take that for what it's worth. But to the person who doesn't and can't keep the rules but believes the promises of God who declares righteous the rule breakers, his faith, his trusting that declaration made by God is counted as equal to having kept the whole law. And what do we mean by grace alone and and justified? By grace, we mean not a substance that... uh, uh, you get when you come to church and uh, it's injected into you here and then you go out and you start leaking grace during the week and then you need to get quickly back to church before the grace completely runs out of you so that you can get uh, get, uh, get it infused back into you. No, grace is that, that attitude, if you will, in the mind of God towards you, that he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And justification, when we talk about that, we're talking about a declaration. He declares us to be just. It's a forensic picture, a, a, a law picture. It has a courtroom bent to it. Um, and when we talk about that, it's imputed to us. And the word imputed means it's credited. We are credited with a righteousness that is not our own. It's put into our accounts if you will. But it's not ours, it's Christ's. Now I said the law and the gospel have some similarities, but but they are also total opposites. They're opposite as to their content. Uh, The law demands work. Um, The law demands perfect obedience. The law demands that inwardly and outwardly and perhaps the best picture of that, or one good picture of that, is the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, uh, what do I need to do to, to, uh, to uh, enter eternal life? And Jesus says, I, you, you need to keep all the, all the commandments. And the, the rich young ruler said, you know, I have kept all the commandments uh, ever since the day I was born. I've done a really good job. And, um, and Jesus, Jesus is a great preacher of the law here, I mean, it can be done in different ways. And he says, that's fantastic. I'm really proud of you. You're a great guy. He says, you know, I can only think of one thing left. Just sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And he goes away sorrowful because he had many riches. He had made his riches his God that he feared and he loved and he trusted above all other gods. And so, he hadn't even kept the first commandment. And he goes away sorrowful, and Jesus said, you want to talk about the second, and the third, and the fourth, and the... No, he didn't do that. Um, He preached that law, and the rich young ruler heard it. Um, The gospel demands nothing. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It freely offers to everyone who is disobedient grace and life and salvation and forgiveness on account of Christ. And it never condemns and it never rejects and it never demands. The law and the gospel are also opposites as to how their promises are put forth. So in other words, the the promises of the law are conditional. Uh, if you do this, then you shall live. The promises of the gospel are unconditional. I have done this for you. This is yours. And maybe a picture of that is the prodigal son. Now you remember the story of the prodigal son? He's off in that foreign land, and he would, uh, if he could, eat uh, the, the pig food, but he can't he comes to his senses, he comes to himself. And he he prepares this speech that he's going to give to his dad. And uh, he's got this speech memorized. And he gets back home. And you recall, he gets part of the speech out. I've sinned against heaven and against earth. I am no longer worthy to be, uh, be your son. Hire me back. And hire me back is a sign that the son still doesn't get it. He still doesn't understand. He doesn't ask for his father's grace. He wants to earn it back. And what's wonderful is the son is not even allowed to continue his speech. The father comes running. He kills the fatted calf. He finds another family signet ring and places it on his finger. And he gets the party started. And that prodigal son's speech dies in the background because the gospel is pure gift. The father doesn't say, well, son, it's so good to have you home. Here's the family ring. Here's the fatted calf. We're going to throw a party. Um, You know what? Um, I'll let you work for me a little bit and you you get one more chance and and, uh, if you do this, we'll advance you to the next step. It's not there because the gospel is free. It's unconditional. It's pure. Everything necessary to bring us into the kingdom has already been accomplished for us. The gospel declares us to be what we are not. I just wanted to put a few things up here. The gospel justifies people who are in and of themselves unjust. No one is just before God on the basis of obedience to the law. The gospel speaks of a justification of unjust people. And it doesn't mean justification in the sense that uh, he's turning us into just people. And I wanted to just kind of put that distinction up there because there's that, that picture of being declared righteous as opposed to being made righteous. Now, sometimes the scriptures talk about being made righteous, but usually the the context is is that of a judge declaring someone to be righteous. Um, It's the picture of imputed righteousness, or righteousness credited to you, as opposed to getting it infused into you. It's credited as yours. Uh, It's also... a that whole picture of being credited as opposed to being made righteous. Because if you think about it and you knew my life, you would realize that I have not been made very righteous. 55 years and God has not made a whole lot of progress. Um, uh, And yet he has declared me to be his righteous son. Well done, good and faithful servant. I will hear not because I've you know I, I got uh, some grace infused in me and now I'm getting good at climbing the ladder, but rather because I'm his son. He's declared me to be forgiven. He's declared me to be righteous. He's credited me with a righteousness that's not my own. It's Christ's righteousness that's given to me, and of course it's the other swap as well. My sin that's credited to Christ. So, if you will, God hasn't so much changed our nature. He's changed our status. And the problem with with him changing our nature is we should be getting better and better day by day. And you should be able to see that coming along. And as long as you can see it coming along, it's really great. and You can just live in that wonderful little deception that my life is getting better and better day by day um, till, God forbid, you fall into sin. And then you realize... I wasn't going the right direction, I'm actually going the wrong direction. And now I need to be born again, again, again. So where do you find the law and the gospel? The law and the gospel differ as where you, where you find them, differ in this sense. Um, the law is written in scripture, and so is the gospel, but the law is also written in the heart of all men. So that's the advantage of the preaching of the law. You it's already written on your heart. I mean, you recognize it's true. That doesn't mean that you like the fact that it's true, but you recognize it's true. I say don't steal, and your heart knows I'm right. You may not like it, but I'm right. The gospel is the hidden wisdom of God. It's revealed only in Scripture. And so when the gospel's preached, there's no internal recognition that this gospel is true. In fact, it's so alien to us, it's, it's, it's offensive that God would justify unjust people. That is just plain wrong. God can't operate that way. Um, but you can't learn the gospel anywhere else. You can't learn it by going deeper and deeper into yourself. The only way you can learn the gospel is to have Christ proclaim it to you. You can't have one without the other. Um, We we need to talk both about the law and the gospel together. The law has to do its work first to convict the sinner of, of, of sin and guilt. It has to create despair at being able to save oneself. It has to point out the fact that we're spiritually dead, not not almost dead. I like to say if you're almost dead, you don't need Jesus. All right? You need Miracle Max. Miracle Max can work with you if you're almost dead. But if you're dead, Miracle Max is of no use. Uh, no great big pill he can stuff down your throat to get you alive again. Um, here's where you need Christ. We're spiritually dead. The law points that out. The law has to point out the fact that we are sinners who are desperately lost. And then the gospel can can deliver the grace of God to us. And even Christians need both the law and the gospel preached. Now there is a new man in us as Christians. From, From 2 Corinthians chapter 5 it says, So if anyone is in Christ... There is a new creation. The old has passed away. See, everything has become new. And the new man doesn't need the law. Now that that it's written in his heart of flesh rather than stone, the new man uh, obeys the law cheerfully. The new new man uh, willingly loves God just as Adam did before the fall. The only problem is the new man isn't all there is of me. Uh, Reformation phrase is, we are saint, new man, and sinner, old man, at the same time. The old Adam is still around. And the problem with the old Adam is he's an incredibly good swimmer. And he can swim out of any baptismal font. He's fast. And he's strong. Um, So when we view the Christian believer according to the old Adam, the believer neither knows the law nor loves the law nor is willing to keep the law. In fact, the old Adam in each of us is constantly opposed to the law and enjoys transgressing it. And we have those two living inside of each of us until the day we die. We're going to go to our death in that condition. Um, part of us in rebellion, and part of us in great love. So we need the law to convict us, even as Christians, and we need the gospel to soothe us. And if we just get the law if that's all we're getting, if I, if I assume, you know, you guys already know Jesus. You already have been saved. Now I need, you to, I need to show you how to live. If all I do now is preach the law to you and you get enough dose of that, um, you will either, you will do one of two things. You will, you will uh, either get to the point where you actually believe that you're doing it. You know, I'm, I'm actually scoring above the curve here. Um, which is a bit hypocritical because you really know what's going on in your life, um, or you throw your hands up in holy horror and say, there's no way I can do this. I, I need some peace in my life. I'm going to try Buddhism, or I'm going to try something, but this Christianity thing it does not work for me anymore. I'm done. I'm done. I'm out of here. Um, I'm going to become a happy, healthy pagan because this is just killing me because I can't do this. So the law alone results in hypocrisy or despair. And the gospel alone results in indifference. I can do whatever I want. It doesn't really matter. Um, There's a danger of mixing the law and the gospel. Um, The law says, if you will, you're a sinner, God is angry, and you're eternally lost. And the gospel says you are righteous and holy. God has declared you that. God loves you and you are eternally saved. And mixing the law and the gospel, uh, putting law conditions on the gospel, you get nothing but confusion. God loves you if you honor your mommy every day. God loves you if... And you drive a kid off the the deep end with that kind of thing. Because what you give with one hand... You take away with the other hand and both feet. God loves you if. You clean up your act and start flying straight. No, he loves you as you are all the way to your death. And it's the task of the preacher then to Rightly distinguish between the law and the gospel, to hold them side by side with a proper regard for both their connections, because they are connected, and they're also distinct from one another, and uh, to to show the falsely secure to, to, to bring terror to them, and to those who are terrified to bring comfort. That's the job of the preacher. Now, just a little bit on the on the Ten Commandments. Um, God created the world to function in a certain way. Um, first, all of all people are intended to to have this this close relationship with God. God, the the God whom we can fear, love, and trust above all things. Commandment number one. And once that is in place. Once that relationship with God is in place, then we can relate and live with other people in this world. And it just flows from that. So obeying the law isn't a method for achieving a close relationship with God. It actually works the other way around. Keeping the commandments flows out of a relationship with God and this relationship that He has established with us that God created order in this world isn't so odd. I mean, we see patterns of it all over the place. You, there's morning and there's evening the first day and there's dark and there's light and there's seasons and there's hot and there's cold and there's husband and there's wife and there's the way the body functions, and there's yin and yang and, well, just kidding there. But the point is, the point is that even without knowledge of the true God, You can see this pattern that's in life. This is the—it's written in us. It's there. Um, These things function without our efforts, but but part of the proper ordering of creation includes the things that the commandments address. I'll just put them up here like this. The first commandment trains the heart. The second commandment trains the tongue. The third commandment trains the ear. The fourth commandment trains us to respect proper authority. The fifth commandment trains us to love our neighbor. The sixth commandment trains us to respect the relationship between husbands and wives. The seventh commandment trains us in how to care for our neighbor. And the eighth, how to protect our neighbor's name. And then the ninth and the tenth, train our attitude toward God's gifts to us. So that those gifts to us, don't, we, so that we don't take those gifts and turn them around and turn them into the God who gave them to us. So when it comes to the Ten Commandments, Uh, the small catechism unpacks them in this way. Luther, in most of them, says, when when he puts the commandment up, he says, what does this mean? We should fear and love God that we, and then he includes some negatives, do not, and then he includes some positives, but rather that we should. And the key questions regarding the Ten Commandments are these. What of God's, Rather than thinking of the Ten Commandments as if they, you know, uh, as if uh, God was up, uh, what, what was the the joke? It's, it's kind of I don't know if I can tell off-color jokes on the on the on the television screen, but but uh, but um, God is uh, uh, up on the um, uh, he, he's he's in Sinai and, and Moses is up on top of Mount Sinai and God comes to him and says, um, uh, I I have some commandments and. Uh, and uh, Moses says, well, how much do they cost? And God says, they're free. And he said, well, Moses said, I'll take 10 of them then. Um, now God's not into just giving commandments because there are commandments out there. Ask yourself, what part of God's and what of yours is God trying to protect for you by giving you these commandments? He's not interested in destroying you. He's interested in protecting you. So what of God's and what of yours is God trying to protect for you, by giving you these commandments. And then, how have I gone against this? And the point of all that is that we want it to drag us to the cross. It's not about our morally getting better and better. I'm not against morally moral improvement or anything like that. But the, the job of the Ten Commandments is to drive us to Jesus. And so we have the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt have no other gods. And Luther says... We should fear and love. We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And then, an incredibly tiny font. It's it's almost like microfiche. Do they still have that? Uh, you know, remember that <laughs> you have to go and try to find the microfiche and get under the reader. And you have a whole book on 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 a card. And now we have a whole book on a little stick about that big. But. um uh, We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Some questions to ask. In what or whom do I trust above all else? In what or who do I trust most for financial security, physical safety, emotional support? Do I fear God's wrath, avoiding every sin? Is my love for and my trust in God evident in my daily living? Do I expect only good from God in every situation, or do I worry, doubt, complain, or feel unfairly treated when things go wrong? Do I withhold from God what is rightfully His? I shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Luther said, What does this mean? We should fear and love God that we may not curse, swear, use witchcraft, lie, or deceive by his name, but call upon it in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. There's a proper way to use God's name as well as an improper way. Is the Lord's word evident in my daily speech? Or do I use his name carelessly? Am I diligent and sincere in my prayers or am I lazy when, uh, calling upon Him only when I, when I feel like I'm in trouble? Um, the third commandment, God's day. Thou shalt remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Luther said, what does this mean? We should fear and love God that we may not despise preaching and His word, but rather hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it? Do I despise the word by neglect or by paying little or no attention when it's read or preached? Um, It's kind of funny. Uh, when, When children come out of church, they very often hand us pictures that they drew during church. And sometimes it's a picture of the gospel lesson it's their, their picture of what's going on in the gospel lesson. Sometimes it's, it's Pastor Rhodey in the pulpit, you know, or um, you can tell because he's much taller, you know. And, and then there's Pastor Hodel in the pulpit. And, uh, um, and, and, and uh, the pictures of the stained glass windows, they hand us those things. Um, adults don't hand us anything. But when we go through the pews, we find shopping lists. We find to-do lists. <laughs> we find all sorts of fun things. We thought of keeping them and publishing them in the, newspa- in the newsletter, but we decided not to do that. <laughs> but this not only goes for lay people. Do I, as a pastor of God's flock, fulfill my calling through a diligent preparation and faithful preaching of God's Word? Or do I just say, you know what? I don't need to study the Bible and and meditate on the Bible and, and do daily devotions because I preach for a living. I do Bible classes for a living. This is my study. I'm preparing this for you. And so this is my study. No. No, God's got something for me too. Not that this isn't for me, but... Thou shalt honor thy father and thy mother. Luther said we should fear and love God that we may not despise nor anger our parents or other authorities. Luther saw, I think, as Scripture saw, that the basic foundation is the family. And from the family then come other authorities, whom the family places over the child. So my child goes to school, and that teacher has authority over my child because I have put that teacher in authority over my child. You know? Um, I uh, respect my son in one sense because he's my son and I love him, but also because I have actually put him in authority over me because he wears this badge and a gun on his hip. Um, He's authority over me at different times. Um, Do I anger my parents or other authorities? But rather, should I honor them, serve and obey them, love and cherish them? And some questions to test Myself on those. Thou shalt not murder. Where is more murder than kill? We should fear and love God that we may not hurt or harm our neighbor in his body, but help and befriend him in every bodily need. Um, Adults need to know that. Kids need to know that. Kids are playing out on the circle. You hear this somebody, somebody. All of a sudden, there's this blood curdling scream. All the kids just split to their houses. And what what does your child say to you? I didn't do anything. (laughs) You know. Um, as opposed to helping my my friend in every bodily need, like coming and getting mom or dad to come out and solve the dispute before it uh, escalates into uh, physical assault. Um, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Uh, You see no negative ones on this one. Luther said, I don't need to give anybody any ideas. Here, they already know. Um, So he said, We should fear and love God that we may lead a sexually pure and decent life in what we say and do. And husband and wife love and honor each other. Thou shalt not steal. We should fear and love God that we may not take our neighbor's money or possessions or get them in any dishonest way, but help him improve and protect his possessions and income. You give the... Clerk, that extra change back. You didn't charge me enough for this. It's protecting my neighbor's things. Thou um, should not bear false witness against thy neighbor. We should fear and love God that we do not tell lies about our neighbor, betray him, slander him, or hurt his reputation, but defend him, speak well of him, and explain everything in the kindest way. Or put the best construction on everything. How many church fights would be solved if we just did this? I'm so much more interested in the gossip. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Luther said, we should fear and love God that we not scheme to get our neighbor's inheritance or house. Or get it in a way which only appears right but help and be a service to him in keeping it. There's the letter of the law that we can follow to get it. Um, but has the spirit of the law been kept? Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his cattle, nor anything that is his. We should fear and love God that we may not entice or force away our neighbor's wife workers or animals or turn them against him but urge them to stay and do their duty. Um, I always was confused by that. I was very risky telling your wife you should do your duty honey. You know that that might uh, just get a very disgusting look but that word duty isn't uh, you've got your jobs to do now get them done. <laughs> it's It's we all have different vocations in our lives. That's what Luther's talking about. He's talking about the different vocations that we all have in our lives. And and God has given those blessed vocations to us. And to, to do those things for the good of our neighbor. So for husbands to be good husbands and dads to be good dads and to be good employer or employee or pastor or whatever you are, to do your duty or better to fulfill or live out your vocation as opposed to being discontent with my spouse, my family, my vocation, my job, the employees that God's given to me. Um, So again, those key questions about the Ten Commandments, what of yours and what of God's is He trying to protect for you by giving you these commandments? And how have I gone against them? And using Luther's uh, uh, meanings to the catechism or meanings to the to the uh, ten Commandments to help me to help the to, to to help me come to understand the law that is being preached to me by these ten Commandments what have I done to go against these all to drive me to the cross? I had some little sayings up here there they there there's holes in this so I just go through it real quick um, the soul who sins is the one who will die law or gospel that's pretty bad news yeah. uh, because we're all there the son of man came to seek and save the lost is great news especially when by the law you realize I'm, I'm, I'm lost I'm dead in my sins I'm, I'm blind to the will of God and I'm in fact an enemy Um and yet he came to seek and save me, the lost. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God is, is law. Love one another, even as I have loved you. It's kind of the tricky one. Love, oh, that's got to be gospel, but love one another. Yeah, And uh, even as Jesus has loved you, go and do that. I know that my Redeemer lives. Wonderful passage out of Job. And that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. I guess the resurrection was going to be part of uh, the plan even in the Old Testament, huh? And after my skin has been destroyed, I think the Hebrew there is eaten by worms. It's not quite as nice to read, so we kind of water it down. After my skin has been eaten by worms, yet in my flesh I will see God, I myself will see him. With these very eyes that have been eaten by worms, they will be raised to new life, and I will see God, I and not another. And I will see God on my side, as the one who is for me, not against me. Wonderful gospel in the Old Testament. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And we always add that next verse. For God sent the Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Well, that's kind of a summary of, of uh, law and gospel and a brief look at the, at the Ten Commandments. So... Thank you very much for for coming tonight.